Let me pray for us, and then we're going to open our Bibles to the book of Galatians. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the great privilege and the joy of coming together to worship, to encourage each other, to, to receive from you. Heavenly Father, you truly are the, the reason why we're here this morning. You draw us to yourself often when we don't even realize you love us. You begin to, to work and, and do things uh, in our hearts and in our minds that are absolutely wonderful. I pray that this morning you would, you would teach us, help us, help us to have hearts that are, that are open, that are soft and attentive to what you wanna do in your church and our lives this morning. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. The book of Galatians is where we're going to be focused this morning. Galatians chapter five, specifically, we've been working through a series entitled Life in the Spirit, and as a church, we really want uh, to learn what it might be like to experience life in the spirit. Jesus, before he was crucified, he met with his disciples and he explained to them that he was going to go to the cross, that he would actually die as a sacrifice for our sins, for all of the sins in the world, uh, to make a way for us to come back into a right, good relationship with our heavenly father, with our creator, um, and then that he would come back to life after having died for us and then go back to be with his father in heaven. And he said, but this is good that I'm leaving because I'm gonna send another. Just like me, just like the way that I've spent the last three plus years with you, teaching you, demonstrating for you what it looks like to live in relationship with God, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. My father's going to send the Holy Spirit so that Whoever comes after you can experience this life. The Holy Spirit, in fact, will be with you and will live in you. Now, I think, I'll, I'll speak personally for myself. I was gonna speak for the world for a second, but personally, when I read about things like that, when I go back to that discourse in the upper room and Jesus is describing this life in the Spirit, the life lived in relationship with the Holy Spirit, I'm like, dang, I want that. What, what is, I understand conceptually, I can read the words and I kind of grasp the concept, but my, what might it be like to actually live that out? Experientially, uh, communally, as a church family, what if when we gathered there was a, a definite sense that God was with us? And that we're not just talking about God or we're not just acquiring more information about God, but that we're actually getting to know God better. Experiencing relationship with him, experiencing his uh, transformational power, his grace in our lives. Getting closer to his heart for, for, for us, for his church, for our city, for the world, 
like a real relationship. And that's life in the spirit. So that's what we've been talking about just to kind of set us up again. If this is a bit new for you this morning. Uh, this, this is what we're looking at. And this morning, we're going to do that by looking specifically at a portion of a letter that a man, an apostle named Paul, wrote to a church in the region, actually a handful of churches in the region of Galatia. Now, the Holy Spirit was actually leading Paul to pen these words, to write this letter. And so now when we read it, it's almost as if God will speak to us through these ancient words. Crazy. Let's do it. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Here we go. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We'll stop there. Question. Have you ever wondered what it might be like to gain mastery over your inner world? Have you ever found yourself, uh, you know, going about life, doing things, and perhaps being tempted to act a particular way or, or to go someplace or look at something or whatever it might be, and you think, ah, I really want to do that, but I don't really want to do that, and you find yourself conflicted. And then occasionally, perhaps in a moment of weakness, you find yourself giving in, and you do that thing, but you don't really want to do it, but actually you do really want to do it. That's why you did it, and, and you find your inner world in turmoil. But what would it be like if we could live our lives with some kind of a, a mastery, self-control, a mastery over our inner world. What would that life be like? Wouldn't that be amazing? It'd be kind of cool. What would life look like if you always did what you actually wanted to do? Or what if you actually 
do the things you do want to do, only it's really hard to admit that you're actually doing what you really want to do because that's why you're doing it. So you do it only to realize once again that you're doing the things you don't actually want to do or perhaps you are doing and around and around we go. Yeah, Romans chapter seven, Paul, he, he puts it this way. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Life in the spirit. It's a journey of transformation. Um, By the way, let me quickly define a word for us, uh, flesh. So Paul used this word flesh, uh, works of the flesh, desires of the flesh. He said the desires of the quote unquote flesh are contrary to the desires of the spirit. Now that word flesh, it's an ancient Greek word, sarx or sarkos, depending upon the context and and, and what passage is being used, sarx doesn't necessarily refer to like the physical body. Now it can, but it's not, the Bible is not anti-body. I want to make this very, very clear. In fact, the scriptures are incredibly like pro-body. God has like this incredible vision for our bodies. In fact, if you go back to the beginning and you read the creation account of the man and the woman, it begins with this very earthy physical description of of the male and the female. We started out as bodies before anything else, and then God breathed his spirit into us, and we became living beings. But the body was meant to be part of our, how we reflect God himself. That's, That's a great mystery. The Bible is pro-body, so when we read that word flesh, what we should be thinking about is not just like, oh, God's really down on my body. God hates my body. And no, God loves your body. He made your body. But there is something at work within our bodies, our minds, and our emotions, and our being that's fleshly, uh, carnal, if you will, self-destructive, selfish. It's these tendencies, that, these desires that we all experience that actually aren't helpful, that aren't good, that actually end up hurting us, destroying relationships, even damaging our bodies, depending upon what you might be into. So the flesh, that word sarks, it's not my body. It's this, this aspect of my being that is contrary to the desire of the spirit. Just wanted to make that clear up front. Life in the Spirit is a journey of transformation. The Holy Spirit, God with us and in us, wants to transform us, and not just on a superficial level. This is not just behavioral modification we're talking about. The Holy Spirit works on our affections. He reorders our wantings so that we're not simply left to repress our desires, doing our best to act as we ought, but he actually engages with us with our desires. After having sought gratification through the endless pursuit of diminishing returns like retail therapy, habitual gaming, um, I don't know, what are you into these days? 
What are the things you do that you'd wish you stopped doing? Whole world of stuff online. Let's just put it, let's just leave it at that. After having sought gratification through the endless pursuit of diminishing returns, the Holy Spirit begins to heighten the hunger pains of our anemic soul and redirects our desires to even greater satisfaction, lasting satisfaction in knowing God. The Holy Spirit, life in the Spirit, is a, it is a journey of transformation. God wants to change us, but not merely on a superficial level. God works in our hearts. He engages with our desires. He redirects our wanting so that we can find the satisfaction we're looking for, not in diminishing returns, but in something wonderful, lasting, eternal, and life-giving God himself. How about that? Are you guys into that? Have you ever experienced that? Perhaps on some level. How does that work? How does it work? I want to know. How does the Holy Spirit change us in this way? It's what Paul elsewhere um, in his letter to the Philippians describes as the secret of being content. He said, I have learned how to be content in want and in plenty. I know what it means to find satisfaction, at least in part in this life, because he was known. He was experiencing this sort of transformational life as he was walking in the Spirit. This is, this is what we want. This is, this is where the action's at. How does this work? I'd like to uh, highlight three things that we just read about. Number one, the Holy Spirit takes us on a journey of relinquishing control. Now, this is a reoccurring theme. I think I talked about this last week. This is a big part of living life in the Spirit. He changes us by inviting us to relinquish control. Let's go back to uh, the text. Verses 17 and 18, we read, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, then you're not under the law. You're not simply trying to adhere to the rules. Again, Paul writes elsewhere in Romans, again, that we've been set free from the law so that we might now live by the new way of the Spirit. This is Romans chapter 7. We're not simply trying to do what we quote-unquote ought because we're decent religious people, but we've been set free to now actually pursue our desires which are found and being found in God himself, God isn't trying to simply give us new spiritual, God isn't simply trying to give us new spiritual desires. The Holy Spirit has desires and is asking us to submit to his will, to be led by him. You guys ever think about that? You have desires. And the spirit has desires. Occasionally, my desires overlap with my father's desires. Occasionally, they um, come into opposition. And I find myself 
uh, in conflict in that way. I think oftentimes we think of uh, desires of the spirit as in like God gives me new desires. Now God can change my desires and we'll come back to this in just a moment, but I think primarily my desires are actually a gift from God. Now, how I go about fulfilling my desires, that's a whole other thing. Oftentimes, my desires might lead me, they might get twisted or perverted in a way that I think that the way I'm going to experience a fulfillment of my desires is through diminishing returns. Retail therapy, online porn, uh, habitual gaming, etc., etc. And in fact, my desires, like, like, like the lights on a dashboard, are trying to tell me that there's something I'm wanting, something deeply, fundamentally, that my soul craves, that I hunger for, and so I'm always looking to, to have those desires fulfilled. Now, God doesn't necessarily change those desires, God can redeem those desires and help me, teach me, reveal to me that there are better ways, the more lasting and deeply satisfying ways to get those desires met. But the Holy Spirit actually has desires himself. We, we sometimes think that God just wants to give me more spiritual desires. Maybe. But what we just read is that the Spirit has desires. The Holy Spirit has desires, which means that there will be moments when I have to choose to relinquish control and submit to God's desires. Jesus taught us that true freedom comes not from obtaining the power to will, my most pious desires, pious desires, but rather by surrendering my will to the will of my heavenly father. Like Jesus, exactly. I was hoping someone would catch that. Um, I thought I would include a quote by Frederick Nietzsche this week because occasionally you've just got to. Go back one, please. There it is. Not that mustache. Nietzsche uh, famously asserted that the most fundamental driving force in the universe is the desire for domination or mastery over oneself, the environment, or even others. Nietzsche posited that control, even more than survival itself, is what we desire what our will is bent towards, above all else and nothing more. He said, the world itself is the will to power and nothing else, and you yourself are the will to power and nothing else. Nietzsche wasn't a big fan of Jesus. They had different ideas about how to experience this sort of self-mastery. Jesus said, if you want to experience true fulfillment, lasting satisfaction and freedom, in this life and in the life to come, relinquish control, submit your will to the Spirit. Trust that God's desires are good desires. That our desires are uh, mixed 
the very best most of the time. We think we know what we want. We're, we're like my kids. Rarely a day goes by that Judah doesn't ask me for a piece of candy at 10 o'clock in the morning. And I know in his mind, he's like, why would this not be a good thing? I don't understand, Papa, why you're this oppressive tyrant. I have desires for you, my boy. My desires are better than your desires. Now, you don't believe me, but trust me. And this is, it, it, obviously I'm being silly, but there's an analogy there. We're God's kids. We're fickle. We're finite. We have desires, and sometimes they're good desires. Sometimes our desires even reflect the very heart of our God. In fact, I think all desires, if you trace them back, can be found in the heart of God. Our God himself is a desiring God. He feels, he wants, he desires us. So desire is part of of us bearing the image of our creator, but our desires get twisted, they're broken, they're marred. And so Jesus says, surrender, relinquish, control. Trust the desires that God has for you are better oftentimes even in your own desires for yourself. I'm teaching Judah, my seven-year-old, to submit. Submit to Papa. Trust me, I only want what's the very, very best for you. And then at 12 o'clock, I give him candy. And then I leave. Not really, sometimes. So we begin there, relinquishing control. We have to come to terms with the fact that this life in the spirit, this transformational journey that God wants to take us on actually begin with that decision. We have to decide, okay, who gets to be God? Who gets to decide what's best for me? Oh, and God, we could get super controversial because it applies to every area of our lives. There's nothing off limits. There's nothing that our God doesn't know about or want to mess with or touch or redeem or transform in a wonderful, beautiful, good way. We have to make that choice. Number two, the journey of transformation, life in the spirit is about resting in Jesus. Um, I read online recently that in 2020, uh, us humans spent nearly $40 billion in, uh, in self-help merchandise last year. $40 billion. I mean, little, little perspective, like that's, that's a major, major world industry. Huge, huge. I mean, it's up there with like Netflix and Google and Amazon. I mean, this, this is a huge um, amount of money. And as Americans, we sort of lead the way in the market. Like we, we desire to, to grow, to become better. And that's, I reckon, a really good thing. We all want to grow. We all want to mature and, and become healthy, uh, valuable people in society. But there's something different about the way the Holy Spirit changes us. Instead of telling us to work harder, try harder, work more, do better, 
Jesus calls us to rest, to sit at his feet, to be with them, to abide in the vine. It's this radically counterintuitive approach to how we, we grow, how we change, how we improve. Now, to be sure, there's, there's work. I think I've said many, many times in various sermons and talks on a Sunday morning that, that following Jesus, it's, it's very, very hard. Uh, but it's a good heart. Uh, work is, is part of our, our God-given vocation. God prepares works for us. In fact, in Ephesians, uh, the Bible tells us that we're not saved, we're not rescued, uh, adopted into the family of God by working harder, but by trusting Jesus. But once we're welcomed home, once we're adopted back into the family, we find out that God has all sorts of work for us to do, and that's a good thing because we're made to work. And so we're told to work out our salvation, and that's a good thing, and it's hard, and it's life-giving. But in terms of the way the Holy Spirit takes us on this journey and begins to, to change us, transform us on this deep emotional level, it begins by simply saying, Jesus, I need you to help me. I need you to help me. In fact, I think oftentimes, particularly in, in church settings, you can hear preachers, maybe uh, quite purposely or inadvertently, say that you need to work a little bit harder on your Christian morality. You need to step it up. You need to become more diligent. You need to give more. You need to sacrifice more, et cetera, et cetera. And you can walk away, really, with this sort of impression that actually Christianity is hard, and I'm expected to do better, to, to give more, and to work harder. And what will end up happening, either you'll be the kind of person who's really good at that, and you'll, you'll find that, that this is your, your jam, and you just have this sort of natural bent towards religion and morality, and the next thing you know, man, you're, you're, you're doing it. And of course, there's a whole bunch of people around you who are terrible at it, and you'll, you'll naturally look down at them, and you'll perhaps even have exchanges with them that will leave them feeling totally inadequate. Like, what's your problem? Why can't you get it together? What's wrong with you? Why don't you just work harder? Oh, wait, maybe you don't even love Jesus. Or perhaps you are that person who does love Jesus and you want so badly to live in a way that honors him, that looks something like him. Well, you struggle. You're like, man, I don't get this. Shoot, I, for, as far as I can tell, I was born a particular way with, with, with a personality and habits and, and way of thinking. And it just, I, I struggle so much to live in a way that I feel like my heavenly father would say, I'm so pleased with you. I'm so proud of you. I love you so much. You're doing so well. Keep it up, champ. And I just did it wrong 
every day. And half the time, I can hardly even bring myself to church because I know I'm just going to sit there and just feel ashamed. Like I'm not good enough. I don't have what it takes. And even though no one's going to actually say it directly to me, oh, I know what they're thinking. And they'll be nice about it. But we say stuff like, you know, hey, maybe I can give you some advice on how to, like, be less of a loser. <laughs> oh, I'll say it in a really pious Christian way. And it's, we go round and round, and it's like the air we breathe. And you know what it is? It's just shame. It's just shame. And religious places can be rife with shame. And it keeps us in bondage. And Jesus, he says, come to me. You exhausted? You tired? You hungry? You ready to give up? Come for the sick. You've got it all figured out. I do not have what you're looking for. Can't help you. I've come for the sick. I've come for the weak. I've come for the downtrodden. I've come to those who have come to the end of themselves. Come to me, and I will give you rest. I'll teach you. I'll help you. I'll carry you if need be. I'll give you strength. You don't need to come to me with the answers or, or, or the power to will. You just need to be willing to surrender to my will. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Last point. The Holy Spirit leads us to relinquish control, rest in Jesus, and all for the sake of relational health. You know, the passage that we read, in most of your Bibles, I would assume, depending upon sort of what kind of who your publisher is. Uh, portions of the text are broken up into sections. And normally the section that we read doesn't include the, the first or last couple of verses that we included this morning. Um, but there's a reason we did. Uh, context is super helpful. But look, look what it says in verses 13 through 16. In summary, your personal freedoms are given to you for the purposes of serving others in love. Therefore, walk by the Spirit. And then he goes on to talk about the conflict and, and what the flesh looks like and that sort of work. And conversely, the fruits of the Spirit. But then on the other end of that passage, in verses 25 and 26, he concludes by saying, keep in step with the Spirit so that we may not might not provoke one another out of conceit or envy. The passage is book-ended with relational notes. The point of walking in the Spirit 
is that we would enjoy relational health. Which begs the question, when we talk about transformation, we talk about, I want to change, I want to get better, I want to grow up, I want to stop doing things that I don't want to do, and begin to live my life in a way that reflects Jesus, and that really leads to lasting satisfaction. And like, that's what I want. And so you might read the fruits of the Spirit, things like love, joy, peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control, and say, yes, sign me up, that all sounds great. Oh, and by the way, all of that is so that you can enjoy healthy relationship with the people around you. Nah, that's all right. I'll just take the love and the joy and the peace. Uh, maybe not too much patience. Uh, kindness, yes, please. Self-control, double that one. But I, what, what does anyone else in the room have to do with it? And the answer is Everything. Life in the Spirit, the journey of being transformed by the Spirit on an affectional level, is for the purposes of growing up in our relationships with one another. This is the problem that I have with the self-help industry. I don't have problems with like self-help books. Some of you read that stuff, totally fine. I have no problem. I'm not going to bash self-help. It's not helpful. But this is the problem I do have with it, is that it's easy to pick up a self-help book, unless it's specifically to do with improving your relationships, but you can pick up a self-help book and read it and focus simply on self. I want to get better. I want to be more healthy. I want to like the way I look in the mirror. I want to I be, I want to earn more money. I want to do all of these things. I want to improve myself so that I can feel better about myself. And I don't know, maybe the people I like around me you know, might benefit. They might, they might get a little something because I'll be a better person. So maybe they'll you know, benefit from that a little bit. But I don't necessarily have to be thinking about my relationships. And if that is what you're interested in, that is if, if you're not interested in relationships, but you really just want to improve yourself, can I, can I give you some advice? Um... Don't waste your time with this stuff. It's not going to help you. It's not going to actually give you what you're looking for. I don't really mean that. Actually, I do, want you to, I do want you to explore this stuff. I want us to all grow in this way. But we have to know right up front, guys, the Bible's not going to give us, like, you know, 10 tips on how to, like, double your income. It's not going to give us, you know, the, the, the secret sauce to how you can like get chiseled abs. Some of you are like, well, are you sure? I don't know, I've been working out lately. I'm sure it's obvious. And in fact, I, part of my motivation for doing that is because when I read the Bible, it tells me that my body, God is very pro-body, God loves my body. My body is actually where the Holy Spirit lives. And so it inspires me. I want to be more healthy. And that makes my abs a little bit, a little bit better. <laughs> but that's not the point. That's not the point. Who was that? Was that you, Jorge? Oh, sorry. 
Surely, surely, surely. Let's all extend our hands towards my wife. Thank you, thank you for that. Do I really look good? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> Guys, be serious, be serious, be serious. Guys, the point is simple. This passage that we read, it's so beautiful, it's so wonderful, it's bookended. Everything to do with like, I wanna be transformed, the Spirit's gonna help me, and I'm no longer gonna be bound to doing the things that I don't wanna do, or perhaps the things I actually do wanna do but I don't wanna do because the Spirit's going to begin to change me from the inside out, and if I relinquish control and decide to submit my will to God's will and say, Holy Spirit, won't you lead the way? And if I can sit at the feet of Jesus and rest knowing that I don't have the will power fundamentally to simply become the person God has created me for, and probably a few other steps as well. This is a very complex journey. But if I can at least get those two bits right and begin to follow Jesus and live life in the spirit, it is for the purposes of becoming a better brother or sister that I might learn to love the way I have been loved. And that when the world looks on, they would know we are Jesus' disciples because of the way we love each other. This whole thing, this whole journey, this whole process of being transformed by the Spirit so that we can learn to love each other. So that we can be the family of God. How awesome is that? God views our moral choices not merely as a matter of personal ethics or self-improvement, but rather as the difference between serving and loving others versus provoking, envying, and ultimately even consuming one another. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. Can we stand together, please? I'm going to pray for us. Would the worship team join me, please? Front. I'm going to pray for us, and um, then we're going to worship together. And as we do, as we sing, can I invite you to open yourself up to what the Holy Spirit may want to, to address in your heart. It's, it's not this heavy, sort of scary thing, like the Holy Spirit wants to just ruin your life. Jesus came to give us true life. He described it as abundant life. The best life. And whatever along the way the Spirit asks us to give up, it's only because God has something way, way better for us. More fulfilling, more lasting. It's like like the difference between um, Avion and toilet water. Oftentimes you're like, well, I don't know. I mean, they look the same. I don't really see anything floating around, but 
No, it's all right. Over a period of like weeks and months, you might find that what you're drinking, what you've been drinking all your life is the very thing that's killing you. And Jesus says, you gotta, you gotta give me what you've been sipping on. I've got living water. This, this is gonna change you. This is gonna be good. Trusting's hard. It's, it's, uh, it's vulnerable. But as we worship, I really believe that the Holy Spirit is present and, and God wants to begin addressing areas of our life. Sometimes we refer to it as conviction. There's something going on in your life, perhaps a habit. It's maybe not like evil per se, but it's, it's something like, look, I know God wants this. I know God wants to change me in this area. I know that I'm not meant to live this way. I know this is damaging my relationships. God will bring it up. And you have a moment like this, perhaps, a chance to respond. That might end up turning into a conversation. Maybe someone you're, you're here with this morning, someone you trust, someone who you can confess to. Say, this is where I'm at. This is what's going on. I feel so ashamed to even bring it up. But I want to surrender. I want to give it to God. Because I know he's got good things for me. Would you help me? Would you walk with me? Can we figure this out together? And have that conversation. Yeah.